You are listening to the Enormo Cast. When it comes to Sportiva, I often praise the longevity of their venerated classics like the Mira. Because, well, if it ain't Baroque, don't fix it. Italian Baroque, that is. But as we know, I'm a stick in the mud whose glory days are well behind him. But you, dear listener, still have your best days waiting to jump out at you like a puppy wearing a backpack full of caramel corn. So hey, forward thinkers, let's take a gander at what's new over at Sportiva.com. The redesigned Cantana Lace is an absolute edging machine. The updated Tarantula line provides comfort and performance at a price point for everybody. The TX2 Evo adds even more performance to Sportiva's stow-and-go approach shoes. And the new Mantra is a minimalist slipper so light and flowy, you'll swear you accidentally showed up to the gym in only your underwear. Just like in that dream you had last night. Don't worry, I just looked down too. So when it comes to keeping you thinking ahead, Sportiva is there with innovation at every turn. Why not see what's up and head over to Sportiva.com or follow them on Instagram. And remember, Sportiva is a proud sponsor of the EnormaCast. So many of you probably feel like it's a flex to bring your grubby outdoor gear to the gym. Yes, we see the red dirt on your big wall harness, sir, and we all know you were doing real climbing over the weekend. But the rest of us know that it's almost essential to have kit that's packed just for the gym and not mixed up with our outdoor stuff, and Black Diamond has you covered there too. Check out the Mondito Chalk Pot for those bouldering sessions when wearing your chalk bag makes you look like a doof. The Stone 42 Duffel is perfect for the arduous approach when the parking lot is, you know, pretty full. And the Airnet Harness is the lightest, fastest harness around since, as we've noted many times before, you can leave your cordelettes, your spare belay device, the knife, the bell beaners, walkie-talkies, cams, nuts, draws, extra lockers at home when you red point the new 12A in the gym. Finally, BD's casual climbing apparel like the Craig Denim Pats can flip from the gym to the street to the cliff without a care and make you look oh so chill when you dry fire and land flat on your back with a loud thwap. So let Black Diamond kit you out for the gym and the crag by going to blackdiamondequipment.com or your favorite local gym pro shop and make your next gym flex be simply giving a good belay and some encouragement to a total stranger. Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? Are you playing here? We're doing the... Uh the Normo Dome, whatever it is, it's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, big place, that side of town. That's a big nice. place. You sold What's it that out. I'll see. You really should. Look, you better get up there before you panic. Those pens are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed having them with you. We'll make it. I don't think so. But we shall continue with style. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment, La Sportiva, and with support from Maxim Ropes. Maxim has been keeping the normal cast off the deck since 2012. And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Enorma at checkout for a discount on great coffee and to support the Enorma cast. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the Enormacast. This is your host, Chris Caloose. It is April 15th, 2022, about 2 o'clock in the afternoon here in Colorado. And this is episode 240 of the Enormacast, a conversation with Brazilian-American climber Maísa Lima. Have you gotten a load of Maísa Lima yet? Follow her on Instagram. Do you know who she is? She's quite irresistible, outgoing, capable, strong. And, you know, I think a lot of the people that work with her within climbing, within the outdoor industry agree that, I don't know, in a lot of ways, I think she's just the perfect representation of, you know, climbing in the 2020s. I'm not sure why I think that actually, but uh, it just feels right. Maiza feels like a sort of a woman for our times right now. But... Before we get to that, I am going to spray down the Climbers Festival again in Lander, July 14th to the 17th. I am one of four keynote speakers with Brittany Gorris, James Kagambi, and Hayden Jameson. A four-pack. I got a few minutes to tell you what I think about something. Not sure what that's going to be yet. 
I can tell you that it will have nothing to do with climbing on wet sandstone. That will not be mentioned. If you want to find out, tickets are on sale at climbersfestival.org. And of course, I'll be there all weekend, not just at the keynote. It's a nice time. I have a lot of good memories from that festival, and a lot that are probably gone. Alas. Okay, let's get to the conversation with Maiza. Maiza has a story unlike anything I've ever had on the Enormacast. It's an immigrant story. An immigrant song, if you will. Oh, now I'm trying not to do it. Not to sing it. Zeppelin. Ah, I did it. That song is sort of apropos, though, because Maiza is kind of the hammer of the gods. The Hammer of the Gods. I should name the episode The Hammer of the Gods. It might be a little esoteric. Can you tell I'm impressed with this woman? Is it showing? <laughs> All right, then. An immigrant story. Maiza Lima. Disfruta. Let me actually start with my own personal interest thing, uh, is that house. <laughs> uh, there's, a, there's a big section of your Instagram feed where you're building some house somewhere, and um, as sort of a amateur uh, builder myself, I was extremely interested in that part of, of your Instagram. So tell me a little bit about this weird house, where it is, and uh, what it sounded like. like it was basically like you guys were doing a big wall, only it was... Um, like the big wall version of building a house where you just went at it like 12 hours a day or maybe longer every day for a long time. So tell me about that adventure and then we'll get to the the less important things like climbing. Yeah. In 2018, when my husband joined uh, the military, we were like, let's go buy like a terrain somewhere. Like, And we found this thing for $4,500 and it's a steep hill inside the red. And we're like, 4,500, well, of course, nobody wants this because it's like 35-degree heel, <laughs> and it's like an acre. So we bought it sight unseen, didn't see it for a few years, and in 2019, we drove there and built a 200-square-foot little shed in five days, and the neighbors are like, who are you? <laughs> and so we went there in 2020, um, and then we're like, we could wait until we're like, have money to build a cabin or we could decide to build a cabin. You know, there are two, mm-hmm. there are two ways. And when you just put your mind into something and you just go full on, things are just going to work out because we don't know when we're going to have money to build a cabin. So mm-hmm. we decided let's just start planning and buying in the next year. We'll just show up and build this thing 30 days. <laughs> right. And that's exactly what we did. Started making 42 small windows at home building it, um, doors, stairs, everything you can think of that we could do pre-made back in Montana. And we just filled this open trailer, closed it as much as possible <laughs> to drive there like almost 30 hours and just kind of drove straight there. We got there and we realized the only person we had actually paid to join us to actually help frame for a couple of weeks, like ghosted us. So he said, okay, um, if we start this, we're going to have to close and waterproof this. We can't go back to Montana because we're not going to be back in a year. So Mm -hmm. what do you want to do? And I was like, hell yeah, let's do this. Um, And so, you know, all the hard things started happening. I was like the excavator guy that was going to like excavate, excavate like the foundations. Um, said he couldn't come because it was raining a lot and it was really steep. So we spent the night digging giant, <laughs> giant, like six foot deep, like holes, like 30 by 30, because we needed to put this giant, like tree logs in. And, and we lifted all these tree logs with pulleys and grigris and a bunch of retired climbing ropes, because why not? And <laughs> we, we just worked like 14 to 16 hours every day. Um, to a point there, my husband like couldn't even sleep because his hands were so swollen and we were under the rain most of the time, but we were so damn psyched. Like 
<laughs> we wanted to build this thing and we knew our timeline and we didn't start framing until like day 12. We only had the foundation and like the, the, the things done because we needed time to dry and whatnot. So from mm-hmm. day 12 to day 28, it was just like full on like trying to lift this thing and try to put a roof on and just basically uh, being like climbers is so helpful because we were like 20 foot off the ground super exposed like not roped up at all just like balancing between beams and um it was like we didn't do the inside at all so we're going back in june but Mm -hmm. like we closed it and we waterproofed it and we were like we're so badass (laughs) (laughs) i mean it looks cool as hell is it like partially in the trees like but what's going on? It also is funny because you're uh, Brazilian, and uh, I actually looking at the pictures. I was like, is, "Are they in the rainforest?" Because it sure as hell looks. I, mean, I just assume like you'd gotten a piece of land in Brazil, but you know, then I've since read that you actually haven't been to Brazil in in a really long time, and so it, I was like, "Okay, maybe it's in the Cascades," because I know you have <laughs> Seattle roots. I had no idea it was in the red, although I'm sure if I'd read the captions more closely, I would have known that, but. Just the pictures, it looks like it's in a damn rainforest somewhere, but it's just in the deep trees in the red, huh? Yeah, and and I think that's what like I loved I loved it so much is because it really reminded me of Brazil. And we mm-hmm. named it Amazonia because it's pretty damn close where I came from. So right. it's a it's very magical place. We're like in love with it and just really excited to go back and finish it. There's a lot of art put into it too. It's not just some average framed, like, you know, uh plank siding kind of house it's pretty cool looking yeah my husband designed every square inch every detail and okay, he said cool. that that's the most normal he's willing to go <laughs> and, right and the, all the wood even for the flooring was like pure just rough lumber that we had to like make it work ourselves you know and mm-hmm. go through like four different machines and whatnot so it's definitely like a lot of love put into that building <laughs> Well, I mean, what's the amenities? Are we taught as it got running water and and um, electricity? The entire little area, little community, mm-hmm. doesn't really have running city running water. Uh, right. My husband has put entire plan project and gave it to the homeowner association, saying, "Hey, if this amount of people put this amount of money, we can bring city water here." But a lot mm-hmm. of the locals are like hesitant, and they're fine. So. They survive of giant tanks and a fire station mm-hmm. comes out and refill like the tanks um, and you pay a certain amount of money to them. Right. Um, so that's probably what we're going to do for now. So, you know, so it's going to be kind of runny water. And we did work halfway through the entire project without any electricity because we, we asked the city to, you know, put electricity in our lot and they just delayed us for two weeks or three so when they finally put electricity we were extremely excited about it did you have some place you were going like a coffee shop to to recharge your batteries um so our neighbors next door they are bnb as well but they would allow us to come in and use it if we needed to but we also had like a motor a running motor that we could just use it. Sure, sure. But at the end of the day, like we didn't really have service. We don't have any cell service down there. So mm-hmm. we don't really use our phone other than my little few Instagram stories that I was taking. <laughs> so, no, I was talking about your tool your tool batteries. Oh, like those we were those charging on our neighbors <laughs> at okay, night. Cool. Right. <laughs> yeah, they allowed us Hopefully to like steal a little that. bit of the electricity. You can get away with not having electricity on a do- job site these days with a uh, with you know so many DC tools, um, but you do have to charge those batteries. Yeah, so that's yeah. I, for I sure. just imagine you like rolling into some coffee shop and like you know setting out like sixteen chargers into one <laughs> one outlet or whatever. Yeah, I think the good thing about this project is it's so like rustic. That's mm-hmm. like the first, like the first part of it was a lot of the chainsaw, like a lot, right. full chainsaw. Right. So there's definitely a lot of like other things. <laughs> you know, the reason I, I, I want to talk about it other than, than just the fascination with a project like that and jealousy too, it, it's just a cool, cool thing to, to throw yourself into. But I, it sort of speaks volumes, you know, about what I read about who you are and, you know, somebody who's willing to on day 12 be like, all right, we're framing. We got like 20 days to finish this thing. I saw it as once I started reading about you um, as a person, it, it kept, became sort of symbolic, I think, in a lot of ways of, 
of how you've like led your life up to this point and in seeking and meeting challenges. So um, that's kind of why I wanted to start with it. But I think the like the big arc of your story is just has to be this young woman. I don't want to say girl, but we can go back to when you were a girl um, in Brazil. Somehow through you know this gigantic arc ending up in uh, Great Falls, is it Great Falls, Rapid Falls, some sort of falls in Montana? Great Falls, Montana. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So like, and that's a huge, it's not really even a question yet. It's just this huge idea of like, um, of transition through, I mean, hardship through bullheadedness, through stubbornness of, and, and, you know, also sense of, I don't know, hope that it seems like you and your mother had um, coming over from Brazil. So can we, uh, I don't know how to frame this, if we want to just talk about it chronologically, but we've got Amazon rainforest, we've got Seattle, we've got, you know, Great Falls. There's like this this incredible journey. Yeah. Um, tell me a little bit about your, you know, where you came from and what that place was like um, in in the Amazon in, in northern northern Brazil. Yeah, I mean, it was out there. Uh, <laughs> it was very secluded, like remote village that I think for the until I was like fourteen, they didn't even have electricity or or running water, phones or anything like that. So I'd say it was a very exciting childhood because um, you have all the freedom in the world to just go fishing and go swimming every day and. And, you know, just live this beautiful life outside of technology or anything else. But I think when you get to a certain point and you get exposed to, like, television and things like that, you start realizing, like, you know, what lacks and um, that you don't really have anything and sometimes not even, like, what to eat, like, properly. So, you know, the, the little village, like, they fought a lot to bring high school to where we were. But I graduated really early. I was like 15. And then I realized I'm too young to go to a bigger city and get work. And my parents could never afford to send me to college. And it's like, what do you do next? And I have an older brother that's like sitting in the same position. And, you know, and my dad was dealt a lot with like alcoholism and gambling. And he wasn't willing to leave. And so we were just sitting there wondering what's next. (laughs) <laughs> it was really rough. You know, you you talk about growing up in a place like that and sort of this uh this innocence I guess in a way being being a bit shattered by information from the outside world but also information about your future, what's going to happen. You know, you're saying you're sitting there wondering what's next. So what, you know, what happened? Like what made the 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 move? What made your mom and you, I guess mostly your mom decide that that they were going to you know, try to get out of there. Yeah. So we had uh, friends that had family on bigger cities and whatnot. And one of these closest friends, she left to try to come to the U.S. and, you know, do that dream, pile some money and go back to Brazil, like a lot of immigrants do, right? And Mm -hmm. She came in and she brought her her children, which were my best friends at the time. And I was like heartbroken. But then two years later, I don't think it was that long, actually. She called my mom. And she said, do you want to come to the U.S.? You, uh, you can work here. Like you can clean houses. You can do this and that. And within two years, you get money to like build your house or, or maybe send your kids to college or something like that. Because my mom always wanted a home that wouldn't... We would wake up when when I remember waking up and this wall like fell down because it was like too weak in our house and we had just plastic covering it for days. I mean, there was no hesitation on her side, but at the same time, she didn't want me to stay there because because there were no future. Like every girl like my age was like already like married with a kid, you know, at the age of like 15. So <laughs> she didn't want that for me. And like, I always had dreams that I wasn't going to live there forever and that I was going to have like a better future. I believed that so much. And she said, do you want to come with me? And I said, but I really want to go to college. She said, you go to college and we come back. Like, just come and and help me do this. And I was like, yes. So we had never even traveled outside our state 
till then and all of a sudden we're getting like passports and everything funded by this friend that was here so we could pay her back and we're traveling and we traveled to Mexico because the plan was to cross the border and not fly to the US because we could never get a visa mm -hmm. so that's what we did and the first time it didn't work out <sighs> and then the second time flew back to Mexico like get a bus ride all the way to the border I had to ride with the luggage for 20 hours because of check-in points and whatnot and survived <laughs> we uh stayed with a family for a week in the border it was like december it was like pretty cold and it was the first time that i felt cold in my life <laughs> and didn't have the proper clothing let me tell you <laughs> and right. five days later these people come and they say it's time to cross and We just went for it and we followed these people with some other people and like we walked, like that was the first time that I walked a lot, <laughs> like hiking. And I think that entire process got my mom and I even closer together because we were there to like protect each other if anything happened. And we ran out of water, we ran out of food, we were freezing at night. I remember crying a lot from being really cold and And she was there for me. And um, we, yeah, we eventually, like three days later, we like made it to the other side. And, and you know, someone drove us to Seattle or something. And it was like Christmas Eve when we got there. And the only clothes I had was the clothes on my body. Yeah. In the, in the stuff I've read, obviously, you've been a little bit reluctant to talk about, especially about the journey. Um, yeah. And, you know, obviously the legality of it. Um, you have your green card now, from what I understand. Yeah. But I mean, what made you decide that it was okay to start talking about it um, and start talking about your background? Because this isn't the first time. Um, like I said, I read an article from at least a year ago um, where you laid out a bunch of this stuff. Um, what made you decide that it was okay or that you weren't, you know, scared or protecting, you know, the people that were involved? First of all, for 14 years, I never opened my mouth to talk about it. And Pretty sure friends that I have that are close-ish still don't know half of this. Mm -hmm. um, for mm -hmm. sure they don't. Um, at least they don't know how exactly I, I came, you know. And it, it's terrifying. Like, the fear of judgment is too big. And it's not even like, mm -hmm. oh, they're going to call immigration. It's literally like they're, they're going to judge the shit out of me. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't think I'm ready for this, you know. I don't want to be seen with those eyes. But then, you know, I got my green card and, and I was already climbing and maybe climbing like gave me more confidence to, to just be myself. And, and maybe now that I didn't feel that I was like in such danger and I could actually travel um, and, and do things, maybe I felt like I could be also a big representation of people that are in the same shoes. And I know that there are a lot of us out there that are still struggling with this and and why not start talking about it because that's something i i know really really well and understand really well the process um and i got confronted on my green card interview when she was yelling at me about my mom crossing me when i was 17 and i said don't you dare talk about my mom like that because you don't know like what how we've been through and the things she's been through to actually like for us to actually be here So it's, it's more like, it's better when you don't know better <laughs> sometimes. Right. And we definitely didn't know any better. And people are just like, yes, immigration is such a pain. And ICE is such a pain. And I understand. But I'm also very thankful for the opportunity to still be here and be forgiven mm -hmm. and be able to call this country now home. Well, tell me a little bit then about you guys' life in Seattle and, and how... You went from, uh, you know, Amazon to living in a city, and then uh, and then kind of rediscovering uh, the outdoors and and finally climbing. Because one of the other interesting things about talking to you is that you're 27 years old when you find climbing, and uh, you know it's almost a joke on the show to talk about that as a late comer to the to the sport because we're so used to you know basically kids 
climbing out of the womb, so to speak, because of climbing gyms. So um, tell me about your life then in in Seattle, what you were doing and uh, leading up to, you know, you had such this connection, I think, with the outdoors. It was just it was just life when you when you lived um, as a kid. Um, everything was outdoors, it would sound yeah. like. And, and, you know, then you're in a city and then you it seems like you sort of rediscovered it. You know, when you get to Seattle at that age, you're just like discover this whole new world, you know, and you start, obviously we were working so hard and cleaning houses like from day one and Mm -hmm. it was really tough job and we were working really, really hard. And, you know, I was like in the party scene a lot because come on, that's what Brazilians do and, you know, the high heels and fun and whatnot it was just not fully fulfilling. You know, I've always had like this dream to be like a dancer and like an athlete, but I left a really tough like relationship and met this group of friends, like all Brazilians. And they're like, took me hiking. I was like, this is like, this is satisfying. Like this is like worth like going to bed early for, you know? So Mm -hmm. in the weekends, that's what I started doing, just hiking. But, just always that feeling that I needed something a little more extreme because I think I'm mm-hmm. an extreme person. And so that's when I heard of this nonprofit organization called the Mountaineers. And my friend mm-hmm. said, they do climbing. And I was like, I don't know what climbing is like, but, sh- but that sounds exciting enough. Right. So I go to the website and I, s- I see something. I was looking for anything that said climbing and the only thing that climbing, because I think that was like July or August, there was something called sport climbing course in October. And it was in the in Tacoma area. So it was a little bit far from where I was living, like a couple hours away. But I was like, whatever, like I'm signing up for this. And I'm such a not like techie person that I didn't even think about going to Google and like Googling what sport climbing meant or, you yeah. know, and didn't really know sport climbing gyms were a thing either. I just... Went there, signed up, and waiting for my, waited for my turn to show up at this this thing, and it showed up at this branch, and they're like, "This this is a harness, and this is how you put it on, and this is a belay device and whatnot." And I was always scared of heights, so obviously it was awful experience at the first time. <laughs> but it was it was also very exciting, and and I wanted to do more. Yeah, and I have a question too, going back to um, this girl in Seattle, um, young woman in Seattle. You know, I kind of also want to get a little bit of your impression of, you know, this change. You you lived in this village, very little technology, no, no technology almost, um, all the way down to in your early life not having any amenities to being in an American city. You know, did that sort of play into, you know, what you're talking about with this like party lifestyle? Like, you know, I kind of, it's like the, you know, the Amish have this thing called the Rumspringer where kids get to go and, and be just normal teenagers or whatever, or young people in the city for a year. And they just mostly like, you know, lose their minds and, and party and like themselves into the ground because it's kind of overwhelming. Was there a bit of that or like, what was, just what was your impression as a 17 year old standing in the middle of Seattle, uh, you know, what months after having been in a jungle in in Brazil? Yeah, it was, it was, like honestly like super wild because i always heard of that lifestyle and always wanted to be a part of it in some somewhat you know because i think you are like who you surround with so much everybody is surrounded mm-hmm. with was so much like that you know and even in my village like we were like the family with the least amount of money and so like I could never, like, keep up with my friends or, like, dress like them. You know, my mom would sew my clothes out of, like, scrap, like, fabric and, and whatnot. And and now I can actually afford to go to at least Ross and dress myself, like, <laughs> good enough to, like, go out, you know, and put some high heels on and just, like... So there were, like, two sides of me, really, because there was this side of me where just, like, like I, I've conquered the world and... I feel so good and look at this cool life I'm living and I was able to get out of that place. But then there was always always this side of fear is like, am I going to get arrested? When am I going to get arrested? When do I have to go home? Like, you know, Um, so it was it was a double edge like sword because it was there was a lot of fear always involved Mm -hmm. on Mm -hmm. am I going to get stopped by the police and be sent back to Brazil? 
did you ever walk into situations where people were, you know, using that against you as far as employment or, or, um, you know, just threatening this idea that if I turn you in, you're out of here or or that kind of thing. Yeah. 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 I've definitely gotten many times like threatened to be sent back. And the, the, the funny part about this is that I haven't really gotten threatened by Americans much, but by Brazilians. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah. So a form of manipulation then. Yes. Very much so. Yeah, I mean, but again, like you spent, uh, you know, you spent a, a solid decade or more living that life. But let's go back to that, to to the climbing. And if that provided you sort of, I don't know, a way forward from uh, living in fear, from living in a place where you could be manipulated if somebody found out, um, things like that. So go back to the climbing question, I guess, and, and tell me what you, uh, what do you think hooked you? Uh, into that specifically and and even moved you on from hiking yeah so i did this sport climbing course but it was like short-lived and the next year i did the basic alpine climbing and then i got really hooked because i was like every weekend i had to summit something and mm-hmm. summited all the big volcanoes and everything you can think of like for the entire season and the next year i did the intermediate where we did like some Alpine ice climbing, and I learned how to lead and set my anchors and became a uh, instructor for the organization and part of their committee and all these things. And it was really exciting. And then I think I, I always say that I got lazy, but I started going to the climbing gym more like consistently. And I felt so strong. And I think that that feeling really like helped me like feel more confident in myself and I started like taking in more and more like that and and just like going sport climbing more because finally like I felt like I found something that has suited me I found this sport that it doesn't matter what age I start you know like I can still be the best I can be and I can still see progress and it was it was just this beautiful thing that happened to me and obviously also addicting right (laughs) you it's all you think about and you know the hardest parts were you know the mountaineers had a trip to squamish their rock too was in squamish and i had to make like this terrible excuses why i couldn't come and and why they should give one to me in leavenworth instead in washington and mm-hmm. you know, like my friends and were that always. That has going to do there. with crossing the border, right? Yeah, I couldn't cross the border. I couldn't even yeah, get yeah. close to the border. Right. <laughs> like every time I saw a border right. patrol car, I'm like, okay, nothing can happen here, you know. So mm-hmm. there was like always like all these excuses why I couldn't go um, outside of this, the United States to climb with my friends, and because I was just never ready to tell them. Yeah, sorry, I'm a housekeeper, but I'm also illegal and I just can't go anywhere. <laughs> you know, like you're just not ready to tell people that. Mm-hmm. So you just live with that and just make up your excuses. But at the same time, there is like a huge amount of amazing climbing in the, U- the U.S., you know, and in Washington. So like, it's not that I needed to go anywhere. <laughs> I had I climbed 27 years, I think, before. Before I went to Squamish for the first time, so there I go. <laughs> and I, I can I can cross the border just fine. Um, there's plenty there's plenty of other stuff to do down here for so, sure. Um, yeah, no, I mean I, it was just circumstance, but uh, but it took me a long time to go there too. Um, even though that's kind of a backyard thing for Seattle climbers. Yeah. All right. Well, let's keep on the the the, the sort of climbing track. You're out spending a lot of times rock climbing. I mean, you know, I asked this to a lot of kids who who started climbing earlier than that with parents who had different ideas for how they were going to live their life. How was, uh, how was your mom with this idea of you becoming a rock climber? Oh, my mom was like a hundred percent, like hundred percent in with me. Like she was full, full, oh, cool. like fully in. I mean, we were working together at that point. We were cleaning five, six houses a day and she would like, I don't know, drop me off at the climbing gym or, you know, let me go home earlier so I could go train, like do a a hike, like, you know, like a training hike or whatever, or, or finish early so I could go meet friends and climb in the summer in the afternoon or something like that. And 
even financially support me on climbing and climbing trips and things like that. She was never like, oh, this sounds dangerous or anything. She was just like, full on embrace this. Like, I know this is not going to bring you any future because you really just need to go to college. But like, but like, I see that you're happy and I haven't seen right. you this happy. So I'm, I'm just going to 100% support you. Nice. So she wasn't like, I brought you all the way here so you could get killed on a rock climb. Zero. I've taken her climbing and <laughs> okay, she good. was way more comfortable on a rock than, than I was. Like, Oh, cool. Yeah. So, I mean, at some point it evolves into, you know, what we like to call lifestyle, right? Um, which is kind of what this, this podcast is about in a lot of ways is talking to, to people who've made it, you know, a, a big and, and strongly important part of their lives. Um, is sort of just the only prerequisite for, I guess, coming on the show. So tell me a little bit about a transition to a lifestyle as a climber, identifying as a climber, where you could actually move away from working that hard um, and move into sort of, you know, a place where climbing can take a big part of your life. It isn't this like side project you got to scrape money or scrape time away um, to do? I think it was 2018 when my husband was sent to Texas because um, he joined the Air Force. Um, and, when and I realized, let's back up oh yeah, real quick. shit, you, I'm not. You met your husband through climbing, right? I met him through climbing. We got yeah. married climbing. <laughs> and then he joined the Air Force. And mm-hmm. that, wasn't, that was a pretty hard decision. And, you know, everything is hard when your husband's gone for so long and, and all these things. But, like, the biggest decision was, like, shit, now I'm going to have to quit cleaning which I never thought it was going to ever happen. And we're go- because we're going to be sent somewhere. So I decided to quit six months before we got stationed anywhere else and to just take my Subaru out on the road and just see what this thing was all about. It was good. I didn't love it. I like the security of home. I like to have something all to right. go back to. <laughs> but, you know. So basically you're saying you, you went on a road trip in your Subi. Yeah. Uh, to go rock climbing. Yeah, I did. And you were were you by yourself? I was by myself. Um, okay. And it was it was not perfect. <laughs> I don't know if I like being alone that much. <laughs> okay. Yeah, but yeah, and then after that, um, we moved to Montana, and I realized I can't really get a good job here. I mean, I don't have a college degree. Like, how are we gonna make this work? So I would be leaving off photo shoots and I'm lucky enough that I get a lot of those. So I was always traveling like back to Seattle or any place, you know, just to do photo shoots and, and going when, whenever I went, I would just spend like a couple of weeks with my mom helping her clean houses and make some money extra. And that's how it started. Uh, just, just digging, like diving right into it. <laughs> All right, well, let's back up. Um, when you're talking about photo shoots, are you th- you're talking about climbing? Um, not necessarily. Like ever oh, since I started okay. like going outdoors, I've always I was uh-huh. I've always gotten chances to do photo shoots for AI and and big brands and stuff like that. Oh, okay, yeah. So okay, so outdoor outdoor in general, outdoor in not general. necessarily just climbing. Yeah. So that's. But we're not talking about like like uh, a model sort of fashion or anything like no, that. No, I wish. I I wish. <laughs> How did these opportunities fall into your lap is, and, and how did that start that that you were being asked to or you were seeking out, you know, being a, a model for whatever company that was interested in it? Did it start organically or is it something that you saw? It just happened through friends that like recommended me and then brands would like me and, you know, or a lot of photographers would just reach out to me on Instagram and be like, I, I like you. I really would like to work with you on a shoot and, and things like that. So mm-hmm. I'd say that Instagram was definitely a big part of it because that's how people actually found me and they were interested in working with me and they were like, I want to work with you again and, and you know, just get recommended to another person, another person. And that's kind of how it started. Was that pretty surprising to you or, um, you know, like yeah, that those opportunities all of a sudden were, were enough to, to like almost feel like you were bringing, uh, you know, bringing an income in that mattered. Oh yeah. It honestly is still shocking. And like, it has developed into a whole new thing, but I still like cannot even believe it. And then people tell me just, 
just enjoy because you know you're getting old <laughs> <laughs> you're aging out they're gonna they're gonna find a a, a younger model to replace you with exactly <laughs> but you know what like i'm just gonna take it all in as much as i can <laughs> it sounds like it was just an organic thing that you know, fell into your lap. But it's interesting to me because you were such this private person, uh, you know, by necessity, you had to sort of like, you know, keep this big part of your life quiet, you know, out of fear that was justified, probably partially just internal fear, also, you know, security for yourself, for your mom. And pretty suddenly, because you're talking about like 2018, 2019, so the last three or four years, you become this public public person mm-hmm. and you've got me asking you tricky questions about immigration and things like that you know H- has that been a n- feeling natural based on your personality was it hard to uh to suddenly realize that you do need to start sharing parts of your life the one thing about professional whatever athlete that i find some some people kind of don't understand even the people that are doing it is that being a public figure means sharing and means showing your face and means talking about your story. It's what the job literally is. And uh, I even, you know, people don't have as difficult a background as you, you know, become professional climbers. And then they're like, wait a minute, I have to talk about myself. <laughs> you know, I can't just shut up and climb and do rad shit. <laughs> um, so has that transition been a difficult one for you? Or is it has it felt natural or, you know, having me in your face right now asking you these questions? <laughs> Actually, I am the biggest extrovert you'll ever meet. God, I like to talk a lot and I don't hide anything or I don't like to. And so those 14 years were actually pretty terrible because that's Mm -hmm. not something I usually do. I love sharing and I love letting things go. So this is this is great. And just being able to share and being able to, you know, just let it out and and maybe find someone that can relate is honestly pretty amazing. I was just getting in Mexico and while after getting all the guys would just go back to the, the big house and go like tuck in their rooms and kind of recharge. And I would just go get a cup of margarita and go hang out with all the climbers, all the clients. And they're all like, who are you? And why, why are you always sitting on like the client's laps and just hanging out with them and just like having the best time? for so many days straight like don't you need a recharge i'm like mm-hmm. hell no i'm fine <laughs> dealing with your immigration status has clearly opened up opportunities you know you just mentioned going to mexico you're able to cross the border now obviously um so first trip to mexico yeah that uh, yeah since right <laughs> yes. yeah <laughs> uh-huh. second trip uh <laughs> first trip that you were you were comfortable with i guess we might say yeah. um so yeah i mean you know the opportunities Seem, seem to be coming in you've also taken an opportunity to sort of dip your toe into social justice that we've been dealing with um and climbing pretty heavily for the last couple of years at least being a woman being a climber of color i, I would imagine the layman sort of american would uh mistake you for african-american would that be a, a accurate <laughs> estimation of most people yeah. right even though you're yeah. brazilian but that puts you into this yeah. group you know, being a woman and also being an immigrant, there's there's a bunch of different ways in which you could go after talking about social justice, and you have. So what has drawn you to that? Has it also just been a natural fit? Again, as someone with a different personality might just want to be a climber and, and not get involved in those sorts of things, but um, your public persona, you yeah. have. And, and I always say that you have to do what feels right for you and what you can do. Like, people shouldn't be forced to talk about it mm-hmm. if they are not comfortable doing so like like i just i just feel like everybody has a calling and we sh- we sh- we should do it if it feels right nobody should be forced to do things just because they're told to do mm-hmm. right i've always wanted to develop routes um because again i like working <laughs> i really do like i never went to college and i don't think i could sit through college because i hate working with my brain but i like working with my body and I'm like, how can I give back to the community? Shit, I can go put some <laughs> bolts up and I could clean some routes. And and it was so perfectly because we were just talking about, you know, route names and, you know, things that we wanted to change in our country. And I was like, this is so perfect because 
even though like for me it's hard to talk about the race part of things because sometimes I never see like people looking at me because of my color. Mm-hmm. I could talk about um hardships of being an immigrant, you know, and that's why I named my first route the American dream <laughs> because it's something that I can really embrace and I really understand. So, you know, and that's the thing you you, sh- you should defend and talk about the things you really really understand. The American dream, I I did note that when I was looking into your background here. And the idea of that is even this thing that I think has been in contention for for a few years. Um, just what that means, who deserves it, who gets it. You know, what what is your sort of like, I mean, you named the root after that. So tell me about what that meant to you as an immigrant uh, when you first got here, what it continues to sort of mean to you. You know, yeah. a, as obviously someone you consider yourself an American, what what does that mean to you? And and like, I guess, how would you, in sort of an argument about what that is, you know, what's your what's your take on the American dream and how yeah. it applies to you? So America, to most of us immigrants, I mean, honestly, to to most people, is a country of opportunity. You do not go anywhere abroad, and you just find like jobs that you get good pay for even if you don't have a college degree Mm -hmm. so here you come to america you find a way to you know if you're a hustler you will make it (laughs) and and that's why like the america dream is such a big thing because you can definitely make it if you if you work hard and so like this is like the perfect country like if you go to brazil I'm so sorry, like, <laughs> and you just have, like, laborer jobs, you're not going to make it. <laughs> but here, cleaning houses, you can make it. Doing roofing, you can make it. You know, just doing anything, you can make it because this kind of job is actually very valued mm-hmm. and valuable. And I think that's the American dream, like, where you can actually grow and you can actually get by and you can actually have a pretty good life just by working on this type of job. Mm -hmm. I think that we all made a choice and we chose, we chose to be here Mm -hmm. and do this type of work. So, you know, I understand that like some people say, Oh, they're stealing our jobs. Mm -hmm. But like, um, are you guys really willing to, to do this type of job? Mm -hmm. Right. Everybody here just values like college so much, you know, which is great. But sometimes a little too much. But we need those people that work hard. And like immigrants are not, they're willing to work hard. And and they made a choice. We made a choice to, to come. And we knew what we were getting ourselves into. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, and great if we get a, an opportunity to go to college here and, and to grow ourselves. But sometimes that's just not the case because that's not where we came from. I never had a chance to go to college because of my legal status you know and i could cry about it i could just embrace it and be like that's my life and i'm just going to kind of make the best out of it Mm -hmm. so let's go back to the climbing what else sort of drew you to developing roots was it only because you wanted to make a statement about naming them or what, what else is involved with it i think for me more like the giving back to the community especially where i came from um I'm I'm sorry, especially where I am, where I get into this town and there's not a climbing community. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, no, <laughs> this is not good. <laughs> and, and I realize I'm the only female climber in this entire town. That's also not good. And And how can I just, I don't know, do something, you know, um, something else. So I realize there is rocks not that far because every climbing area is two hours away. Mm-hmm. But there is like an hour away. There's some hard ass quartite. <laughs> hey, why not? <laughs> why not start there? Mm-hmm. Um, easier access that you can just go by myself and, and you know, and not only do this thing, but I actually like get better at it because I absolutely love, you know, I love the construction side, right? And it's using a tool and mm-hmm. it's creating this thing. So it's it's kind of goes hand in hand for me. So that's 
that's how it started. Like, I mean, I always wanted to put up a route, but now I'm like into it. I just mm-hmm. want to keep doing it. <laughs> Where did you learn how to do it? My husband showed me how to use a drill mm-hmm. a long time ago in our basement. <laughs> and I watched videos on how to put boats. And he took me and was just like, this is how you do it. This is how you make sure it's good. And this is that. And talked to someone else that had boated before. And I'm like, I can do this. <laughs> I spend time there by myself. <laughs> right. But was there any type of like, uh, you know, talking about just the other end of it? Because putting bolts in is one thing. And putting a safe bolt in, that's all kind of like, uh, yeah, construction uh-huh. construction knowledge. But what about you know, what makes good root? Because one of the things that I've railed against a little bit is, is the idea of, of anybody can put a bolt in and, um, you know, yeah. I can give you just in our community, plenty of examples where, you know, just cause it, you know, somebody knew how to put a bolt in, they put up just like this enormous botched mess, um, with a bunch of bolts in the wrong place, too many, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So what about the climbing end of it? How have you sort of like, figured out, you know, to create a good route? Um, has it been trial and error? Has there been anybody that's that's offered advice on that to you? So far, it has been super natural. Everything I've put up, I'm like, this is so good. Right. Five stars, <laughs> five stars. I don't know if it's like, if I have a good eye. <laughs> um, but Wait a minute, roots, are you like, getting other I, people that are telling you that? Because there is a, you know, there is the, yeah, there is the, the first ascensionist bias <laughs> that goes with like every time I've, you know, put a new route up, it's like a five-star classic, you know, that people should come That's true, worldwide yeah. to do. But, no, but I, in general, your, your first, feedback's first been good is, is what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> the first, first route is definitely like boats that I want to change uh-huh. places because I feel like... It can get in the head of certain people when they're like, well, this is pretty far. But mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, it kind of makes sense. But if you don't know where you're getting yourself into, like, it's better to, like, overprotect it than mm-hmm. under. Mm-hmm. But the other routes so far, like, you know, I climb it multiple times. I'm a sucker for, like, really good, really flowy sport climbing. And and that's one of the things that I really appreciate is uh, well-bolted, flowy sport climbing. and so. There's definitely a lot of trying before I commit to a boat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, let me ask you this too. Um, as a woman, and and you've definitely made statements about representing for your gender out there in the sport. You know, one of the things that's been noted, and I think is you know sort of statistically pretty clear, is that there's not a ton of women root developers, especially if you double down to like, you know, the kind of construction banging it out you know, bolting a bunch of roots at a cliff, you know, real like hardcore development. You you kind of, I mean, it's definitely a boys club. It's been a boys club traditionally. Um, I still think it remains that way. What what do you think either makes you uniquely interested in it or um, what do you think the barriers have been and and why, they, why they've been there to uh, to development for women, I mean? For women? Yeah. I think, first of all, women are a little bit held back when it comes to, comes to like using power tools and things mm-hmm. like that and we're always like more intimidated to do things like that or we like don't believe ourselves enough mm-hmm. and i think that's that's huge and i just think that i'm like pretty nosy <laughs> <laughs> And I like to do the hard things and I like to do the different things. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so I'm always looking for something that is challenging and, and hard. And don't get me wrong. I'm scared shit of getting into new things, but at the same time, like I'm confident enough that I can do it. And so all I need is like that one support, that one push. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it doesn't come easy. Right. So I talk to a lot of girls that like want to learn how to put boats on and like develop routes and, and things like that. And the thing is we're always waiting for that one mentor or that one person. But let's be honest, like people are busy and sometimes those people won't come, mm-hmm. you know? And so, so it's hard. It's hard to get out there. Like you can't just get out there on your own and be like, I'm going to learn how to put, put a route up. You know, you need that support. You need that mentor. Yeah. That's hard. I mean, I've called, Jonathan Segrist and 
um, this other guy that develops in uh, in Vegas a lot. And I'm like, I want to come and learn more from you guys and learn how to put good roots up and, and, you know, like all your techniques and stuff like that. But it's never happened, but I still want to. Mm-hmm. Like, I want to learn more and, and grow into it. Right. I mean, you've also got like people like me out there grousing about shitty roots, you know? So it's like, you, you know, there are these, these like, I think, barriers to even trying it. I also feel like, yeah. you know, as women have obviously created a bigger space for themselves within climbing. I mean, that's clear to me in my 30 years. Um, and, and we're talking like year by year. 15 years ago, there was way more cl- women in climbing than when I started. 10 years ago, that had had increased exponentially. And we're, you know, we're, we're getting to this place where it's, uh, you know, I don't, I don't believe it's like parity in terms of influence, but, um, as far as numbers, it's getting pretty close. And so part of me though, is also like, well, it's a little too late to the game because, you know, you're in this place where you have this local rock that has not been developed because you're in the middle of nowhere as far as climbing is concerned. But, you know, there's also just this logistical problem of like, there's just not that much left in the front country to go out and put bolts in. And so if we had this army now of women who are like, okay, it's our turn. It's, you know, we, we want to become developers too. It's like, well, I don't know where you're going to go because you know what I mean? Like it just is a a problem of of like resources. It's all been used up by the dudes. (laughs) Yeah. And, and, and that's when we have to realize that there is, a lot of work to be done out there and mm-hmm. things to be rebolted mm-hmm. and replaced because that's what the community needs. Mm-hmm. So it's not that you need to just go hog an untouched route and mm-hmm. put new boats in. You can you can still do the work and replace boats and help, you know, help the community and, and touch the stuff that has already been developed um, that needs work. I mean, I was trying to help reboating in, in Potrato because I was like, man, this place really needs someone to help. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so it's not just about the rock that's untouched, but the rock that has been touched a little too much and, and the hardware needs a little bit of love. Right. That's true work, right? Yeah. You know, that's like where you don't necessarily even get the, the glory out of, uh, out of putting up a, an awesome new climb that people love. It's just pure construction to go back and replace yeah. bolts. But it's satisfying. You know, and that's always what I look for is mm-hmm. that, that satisfaction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and are you in a position where, you know, you feel as though you would be a, an able mentor to, to women who are interested in, in getting into uh, root development? So that's the plan. Um, I definitely have a lot of friends that want to, to do it and learn. Um, I feel like I know the basics, but I'd love to even, like, learn a little bit more before I can go out and just start showing everyone how to do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I did go to Smith last year and we developed this route outside the park that actually sucks a lot. <laughs> um, and, and all of us put a boat up and stuff like that. You know, I just show them how to, you know, put the boats and stuff. And they each had a chance to like put a boat and everybody was psyched and, it looked great, but the route was chaos pile and, and it's like 5'10 with like a terrible like V7 boulder pop in the middle and like 5'9. So we're all like, this shit sucks. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, I'm glad that you at least could admit it because like I said, a lot oh, of yeah. root developers, like everything they touch is, is like the greatest climb ever ever put up. So um, that, no, that's, hell a, no. Yeah, that's a good... Uh, you're on your way to that discernment. I think may, it's help, helps make someone a good root developer is is knowing when they <laughs> they've uh, you know botched it or or maybe some, should left should have left something unbolted <laughs> that got bolted. Yeah, totally. Yeah, so. I 100% agree with that one. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think for me right now, like I would love a little bit of like go out for a week or two, like and hang out with someone that's like developing and and just really like learned the little tricks and and whatnot and Mm -hmm. there's so many types of boats that use in different rocks and and things like that so it's i think it's very important to to have that knowledge um and to really understand how to look at a boat and be like that's a good one before i just start like teaching everyone how to 
I mean, same thing. Putting bolts is easy. Yeah, I mean, even at the 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 wall that I developed, some of my roots there is still potential, and there is still a lot of things that could be good. But I I haven't seen a line mm-hmm. that I'm like a hundred percent sure. So I'm like, I'm not even gonna touch it. Like, I might put anchors and set up TRs and try to find a line, mm-hmm. but. I'm just, I just, I'm not convinced. Mm-hmm. So like, why am I going to just like put a bunch of boats in there? You know, someone else might have a better vision than I do. Right, so. right. Yeah, that's <laughs> cool. I mean, the humility of that is, I think, important to the process um, as anything, you know, for, for someone like yeah. you. So what did Jonathan say? Did he, do, was he down? Well, you know, he's a busy guy. <laughs> so <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. He was probably polite. Um, there is another guy. Um, he owns this uh, climbing hold company from uh, in Vegas and he develops a shit ton. Uh, I don't know why I forgot his name right now, but he climbs a lot out there in the big limestone caves and he mm-hmm. develops a bunch of those hardcore climbing. And I was, he, he like taught me a lot, like oh, through cool. like messages, but mm-hmm. I'm like, I just need to come over, dude, and like <laughs> and do some stuff. Well, I mean, <laughs> shit, just offer to hike all that hardware out to some obscure, uh, <laughs> obscure cliff that he's working on. It might be, might be enough, enough of a, a self invite to work. Um, because That's that true. shit is heavy and, and they're, you know, and part, part of this resource thing is that these, these bolted cliffs that were, you know, ignored because they were like, too big a hike or too big a drive are all getting developed now you know so shit's getting further and further away from the trailhead and that's when like carrying uh drills and batteries and bolts can get a little bit old um well cool so you know back to your climbing a little bit and then we'll finish up but um the the sport climbing you've been developing um what about your your sort of trad and crack climbing is that something that interests you have you been delving into that on your road trips and stuff yeah i mean the most tread i've done was when i was on that road trip in 2018 i've climbed uh, the original route in vegas with a friend and then i climbed cloud tower and those were like pretty dope but very like tiring because <laughs> they're like so long and so hard <laughs> and you know i've doubled into it like with the mountaineers and mm-hmm. that's you know i had to become like a, a climb leader so i took a lot of people like alpine you know, alpine rock climbing and mm-hmm. and things like that. But I just have not spent that much time in it uh, to be like, this is secure. Like, I'm so good at it. You know, I can hand jam and foot jam and mm-hmm. and things like that. <laughs> but uh, but I like I always want to get good at it, even schedule like a trip to Yosemite in a couple of months. But unfortunately, I had to schedule something else on top of it because I swear to God, like my schedule, like for the years I waited, like looking like absolute crazy shit. And I'm like, <laughs> can't find time to do anything. Well, that's a good problem. So you sort of fell into being, you know, a public figure, uh, a sponsored athlete, sort of organically, it, it kind of happened. But now that you're, you know, you're solidly in it, you know, what what's your pitch to sort of what you offer these companies that, that have you as an ambassador? What, what do you think you bring to the table? So this is the first time I'm actually doing a pitch. Because <laughs> I never had to do one. Oh, you've never had to do one. <laughs> no, I never had to do one. Luckily, luckily for me, uh, like, it uh, all just came my way. Okay. Um, so I'm I definitely a lucky person because I think if it depended on my pitch, I'll never get. Right. <laughs> I'll never get sponsored. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm just lucky. Um, all right. Well, let me help you I work think- on it then. I I better work on it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think for me, like, what I just bring is, like, really good personality, honestly. And I'm, like, a people, like, I love people. And I just can't see bad in people. <laughs> That's a problem in one way because they're, like, do you see how that person was looking at you or talk to you? I'm, like, no, not at all. They're fine. <laughs> you know? So, so, and I think that love for people and that, you know, the excitement and the way I treat people is probably what has gotten me to, to where I am. And it sounds maybe cliche. I don't know. Definitely not climbing hard, <laughs> even though I try.
All right, folks, thanks for listening, and thanks to Maiza for sitting down, coming through the internet. I hope to run into her in person sometime soon. I think she brings a lot of fun to the cliff, don't you think? And some serious try-hard. I like a little dash of both, frankly. And if you're compelled to find out more about Maiza, I think Instagram's probably the best spot. Maiza Lima Rock is her handle, and she's doing all sorts of stuff. She guides, there's clinics. She does events with Black Diamond, with Sportiva. So there's certainly opportunities to learn from her and just to uh, meet and hang out. And I wanted to remind you that though I have my sponsors, this thing is also run by your generosity. Nothing is behind a paywall here at the uh, Enormacast. Nothing. It's all out there. But if you do not feel like supporting the sponsors, and if even worse, you're one of those people that skips right to the interview, of course, you're probably not here anyway. You probably already shut it off. So I don't know why I'm even talking to those people. They're already on to the next podcast, like gobbling up the samples at Costco. But the rest of you guys, if you feel like it, you can always donate. If you go to normacast.com, there's a donate button. Click on it. Drop a couple bucks. It adds up. Helps out. Pays for the whole thing. Okay. I hope you also, like Maiza, are trying hard and having fun but being just careful enough not to quite stomp on the fun, but also not to get hurt or worse. So check your knots. Get an 8,050 gold stars! I didn't do it for the grade. Give me some of that. Yeah! Yeah!